Okay, thank you everybody for coming. Uh, it's a pleasure to introduce an old friend, Cahill Shoiga. Cahill was a, a theoretical physics undergraduate who did a PhD in, in, a, in a genetics department uh, analyzing uh, sequences and spent about a decade after that in, in South Africa uh, working in bioinformatics. And very recently he's returned to Ireland as a Stokes Professor of Bioinformatics in NUI Galway. It's a great pleasure to have him here today. And he's going to be telling us about a phileogenic hidden Markov model for immune epitope discovery. So over to you, Cahill. Thank you. Oh, I'm on, am I? I'm missing, yeah. Grant Crook. Okay, thanks, Ken, and thanks for the invite and the introduction. Um, so I've been already uh, receiving sort of uh, people pointing out that there's a lot of, quite a lot of jargon even on my title slide. So I'm going to try and unpack some of this as you go along. I mean, I've, um, first, my first disclaimer is that I sort of have strayed, uh, I've spent a long time, a long time in, the, in the sort of the away from mathematics, away into what you might call the dark side, um, working very closely on the sort of the ground with sort of biologists. So I've now become inured to, um, to, to, to this kind of jargon and I sort of just take it as something which is completely natural. And uh, so when, when I put up something that you don't understand, feel free to stop me in the course of the seminar and I'll try and explain it. But I will also try and explain some of the concepts as we go along. So this work that I'm going to describe is work that I've done uh, together with a PhD student, a PhD student who was uh, in my group in Cape Town and who came with me at the beginning of this year and who's now back in Cape Town, um, for which I have to thank the, uh, the weather conditions in this so-called Irish summer, which was a major shock to the uh, system of somebody coming from the... <laughs> I should have suggested that he come in winter, but he sort of came at the beginning of the summer and then had all these expectations which were confounded. So um, the talk that I'm going to give, I'm going to give some sort of background and motivation and discuss, and I'll sort of try and make it, you know, set the scene and give some of the context why we're interested in doing this work and explain some of the concepts and the ideas and as much of the jargon as I can think of explaining, and then explain the kinds of models that we're using, specifically explain the general approach to um, modeling. Uh, these are probabilistic models of sequence evolution, so explain the general ideas behind those models. Uh, I believe some people were at a seminar, a couple of seminars yesterday where similar ideas were, were discussed, and so some people would have the benefit of that. But for those who haven't, I'll try to give a sense of what the, how these models work. I can't spend too long on it because I won't get to the bit that we've contributed recently, which is a new evolutionary model which we want to use for the practical purpose of discovering these things called epitopes which have to do with how the immune system responds to invading pathogens. So specifically, we're interested in how the immune system and one particular arm of the immune system responds to HIV infection <clears throat> and identifying the, the positions within the HIV virus or the parts within HIV viral proteins that are targeted by this particular arm of the immune response. So that's the, the goal of this. And we're going to try and identify these using evolutionary modeling and specifically using this framework called phylogenetic hidden Markov models, which are kind of a combination, a hybrid of hidden Markov models, which some people may have come across, and phylogenetic models. And I'll explain where they come out of and how we've used them in the course of the talk. So that's to set the scene. Um, we, uh, so HIV is something I've spent quite a lot of the last sort of eight years of my professional life thinking quite a bit about. In South Africa, it was one of the problems of paramount importance. So um, there I sort of collaborated with a lot of virologists and spent a lot of time with virologists, particularly virologists who are interested in studying the diversity of HIV, the evolution of HIV, and the implications of that for the development of vaccines. So I worked a lot with, in the University of Cape Town <coughs> with Carolyn Williamson and others who were trying to think about how to do vaccine preparatory studies and even, in fact, did develop their own, uh, in that group, in the virology group in UCT, developed their own vaccine, which is now going into trials. So <coughs> HIV is a, 
It's a retrovirus. All that means is that it's a virus which gets into cells and copies itself into the host genome. So it's a, a, a virus which starts out as RNA, which is just one kind of chemical analogous to DNA, and it copies itself into the DNA of the host cell, which is one of the reasons that it's very difficult to cure because there are many cells which become infected which don't really show many visible signs of being infected but have <coughs> snuck in there, incorporated into their own genome, little um, viral particles which can be activated at a later point and reseed the infection after it's become somewhat dormant or less productive for some time. So it's very rapidly evolving as well. In fact, its mutation rate <coughs> gets quite close to the theoretical maximum mutation rate that a virus can have and still be in any way viable in this uh, discussion we had uh, over, over lunch. What, makes, what is the, sort of the maximum mutation rate that you can sustain and still be viable? I'm not going to go into that now, but HIV has a very high mutation rate. And that mutation uh, rate is very important for the treatments and, and vaccine development that are the interventions that we mount against HIV. The virus itself originated, now it's known to quite high accuracy, in West Africa around the 1900s, it's thought, from, uh, from chimpanzees. <clears throat> in fact, last year there was a paper where they were sort of collecting, following up um, chimpanzees, uh, picking up chimpanzee droppings around forests in Cameroon and sort of finding the sort of closest relatives of living HIV uh, viruses among uh, uh, monkeys. The uh, human immunodeficiency virus, which is HIV, obviously is not called human immunodeficiency virus in chimpanzees. It's simian immunodeficiency virus, uh, abbreviated as SIV. And it's obviously a significant pandemic in southern Africa <coughs> and the treatments and vaccination which are the main interventions. Uh, for both of these interventions, the viral evolution is inc incredibly important. So understanding how the virus evolves is really important for treatment because treatment with any drug results in quite a short period of time in the development of resistance and vaccinations need to target all that diversity of the different viruses that are present in, in circulating populations. Yep. How do they think yeah, so the, the, there's a lot of modeling uh, which has gone into that. But in fact, there's also a lot of freezers. So um, in the first sample, there was a, a sample, the oldest sample which was detected until fairly recently was a sample in a freezer in, uh, in Belgium, which uh, was recovered, a blood sample which was taken from mysterious illness in the Con Belgian Congo. Uh, 1958, I think, was the date on that one. So they went back to the freezer and discovered that one. And a, a subsequent earlier virus has been discovered, I think, five or ten years older than that, published last year or the year before. And using these and just modelling the, the evolution, what we know about the evolution of viruses, we can actually, using samples, um, contemporary samples which are taken at specific dates, we can get a lot of information about how the virus is evolving and can extrapolate backwards, incorporating these milestones that we've got along the way and sort of work backwards to what we think was the last common ancestor of all of these viruses. And that turns out to be, if you date it, if you sort of have models that incorporate sort of rates of evolution and you include these um, dates that we've got, you know, going back over the 90s and back to these earlier samples, you can actually come up with a date around 1900s. So it's, it came into humans earlier than probably most people realize and probably spread at quite a low level and then ultimately became a sort of a global pandemic. But understanding that diversity and um, understanding that diversity is critical for developing vaccines because a vaccine, um, the virus is so diverse that a vaccine which successfully prevents infection with one strain of the virus is not in any sense guaranteed to protect against infection of, any, of another strain. And that for that reason, vaccine trials think very carefully about what strains are present in local populations, what strains are being targeted by the virus, and very distinct strains 
which are called subtypes, are present in different parts of the world. For example, Southern Africa has a subtype which is called subtype C. In the um, affluent parts of the world, it's largely subtype B. So a lot of what we know about HIV is in fact about a subtype of HIV, which is very distinct from the subtype of HIV, which is most prevalent in the world, which is subtype C. So this is some of the sort of the biology lesson, <coughs> which is kind of putting some of the work in context. The second thing which we need to do <coughs> to understand some of what we're going to try and do in this lecture is understand a little bit of immunology, and this is sort of going to be cartoon immunology, <coughs> partly because I'm at best a cartoon immunologist. immunologist. If I was able to draw cartoons, I would be. My understanding is um, reasonably basic. What we're going to be talking about is a, an arm of the adaptive immune response. So this is the immune response that involves um, recognizing pathogens and um, it's the, it's the immune response which basically learns and, and adapts and develops over time. So it's the immune response which confers resistance to subsequent infections if you've already been infected by measles. It's immune, types of immune response which um, are targeted by vaccines, for example, which confer persistent immunity against some infection. So that adaptive immune response has two parts. One is called the humoral part and the other is called the cellular part. We're not going to be for this talk talking at all about the humoral part, but just to fill in, the humoral part is the part that releases antibodies which bind, for example, to pathogens in simple terms. And the cellular part is the part that kills infected cells. So we're going to be looking at the part of the immune, of the immune response which targets cells that are infected, in our case, by HIV, and kills those or targets those cells for killing. And that part of the immune response is heavily dependent on a certain kind of molecule called, um, the, well, we can call it the HLA. Uh, we're, we're just going to call it the HLA molecule. HLA stands for human leukocyte antigen. The names are not really important. Again, they have a lot of history in them and a lot of jargon. We just need to know that there's this blue molecule, which we call HLA. And that blue molecule, this, this thing here, is the surface of a cell. And sticking out from that surface of the cell, we've got this blue molecule. That blue molecule is bound to a piece of the, of the virus, which you can see in that sort of ball and chain diagram there. And that piece of the virus is recognized by a receptor on the surface of a, of a cell of the immune system called a T cell. So when that T cell, through its T cell receptor, recognizes this blue thing bound to a fragment of a, a viral protein, it decides it's time to get rid of this cell. It's time to kill this cell in very simple terms. So what actually happens is the virus comes infects the cell, starts hijacking the cellular machinery in order to produce its own peptides, its own proteins. Though every protein within the cell is digested, broken up into small fragments by these enzymes within the cell. These blue molecules, which we call HLA, bind all of the peptides which are broken up by these enzymes in the cell and presents them on the surface of the cell. When a cell from the immune system sees a piece, a fragment of a protein, which it doesn't recognize. In other words, it thinks this is not part of me, it's not part of something I've seen in the course of my development while I was a neonate, while, while I was developing in the thymus or the bone marrow. This is bad news, it decides it's time to kill that cell. So that's, a really, that's really the sort of the, the core of what we're trying to do. But, um, well, the core of what we're trying to do is recognize, identify which are the pieces, because it's, it's not every piece of the virus which is actually presented on the surface of the cell by these HLA molecules. Only certain pieces of the virus are presented and the interesting thing about it is different people present different pieces. Okay, so different people are highly, what we call in biology, highly polymorphic. So these blue things here, which we're calling HLA molecule, are extremely polymorphic. They're the most polymorphic thing. They're the, most, the thing which is most likely to differ between people in this room. 
they, um, they differ very sub substantially, very significantly, and that difference is maintained over evolutionary time by selection. It's a really, really significant part of the human genome, chromosome 6. So all those, those differences mean that different people present different parts of the, of the virus protein, which makes it very difficult for the virus because <clears throat> what viruses typically do is you present a piece of the, of the virus to the, the T cells, the virus typically tries to evolve away, so it tries to evolve changes in its amino acid sequence so that this blue thing no longer is capable of binding to it and so that you're no longer capable of recognizing that this is an infected cell and no longer capable of, of killing this cell. So obviously it's in the interest of us as a host population which tends to be infected by viruses to have different versions of this blue thing among different people so that if I get infected by a virus from you, um, I'm going to maybe present uh, different parts of the virus which have never been uh, subject to, which have never been presented by the person who infected me and so the virus is, has never experienced, the, um, has, has not managed to escape from the immune responses that I'm going to mount against it. So that's the key, so the key idea is that there's kind of what people call an evolutionary arms race going on. Hosts, us, that are, tend to be infected with virus are very, very different in terms of what proteins what versions of this HLA molecule we have and simultaneously viruses are constantly trying to stay ahead of the game and constantly trying to evolve mutations so that the key pieces of the virus, so that these pieces of the virus that are recognized by individual, by these HLA molecules, manage to escape from them and avoid being killed by the host immune system. So we're working, the pur purpose of this lecture is to try to recognize which parts of the virus is going to be recognized and presented by which HLA molecules. And these parts of the virus that are recognized by the HLA molecules are called epitopes. So that's the, where that term comes in. So we're trying to identify epitopes, and we're going to do so by looking at how pieces of the virus evolve over time. So we're going to be constructing evolutionary models of the virus and using those evolutionary models to try to identify epitopes. If anyone has any questions about that, if that's unclear, the rest of it isn't going to make any sense. So happily ask, answer any questions. Okay, so, so that's the objective. This is stuff I've just probably already said. Um, I think I said that. I didn't really say this. They're, they've been shown T-cell responses. One of the reasons we're really interested in them is because they've been specifically shown to be very important for controlling um, viruses, viral infection in, HIV, in the context of HIV. So the, if you look at viral loads, at the, the amount of virus that's circulating in an individual who's got HIV, that amount of virus tends to go through the roof really quickly immediately after they've been exposed to the virus. So you get sick, you, you get HIV, you contract HIV, and within a very short period of time you actually come down very frequently with flu-like symptoms. Your flu, your viral load goes through the roof, you've got massive amounts of virus um, going, circulating around the body and you have this sort of sick flu-like flu symptoms which is called a sort of viremic uh, infection. And that, um, the reduction, the final sort of the, the, when the, the, the ability of the host to control that viremia, bring it down uh, so that you've got relatively little virus circulating around the infected individual, coincides with the mounting of these T cell responses. So that's been shown. So we do know from that evidence and from well, people who've done experiments in animals, not me, that, um, that T cell responses are really important for controlling HIV. And for that reason, they've become one of the major targets of vaccine programs, including famous vaccine trials like the STEP, uh, Pambili trial, STEP was in the US, major vaccine trial using a, a vaccine by Merck, 
and Pambil used a trial based on the same vaccine in South Africa, Southern Africa, and um, these trials were called off a couple of years ago, I think back in 2007, because it turned out that they, if anything, made people more likely to get infected by HIV. So it was a complete disaster in the HIV vaccination field and has, been, has caused a lot of people to pull their hair out and a lot of consternation in the field of HIV. But the more recent news from this year, in fact, is from a Thai vaccine. Again, these, va these vaccines in both cases are designed to, to elicit these T-cell responses. So this is just filling in the background of why specifically we're interested in these T-cell responses and why we're interested ultimately in identifying these T-cell epitopes, these epitopes that are recognized by these T-cell responses. The vaccine trial, in case anyone didn't see the news on that, vaccine trial from Thailand, which, which elicits a T-cell response, but also um, a, a humoral immune response, um, had, appears to have had some success. So that has, they've estimated that the vaccine efficacy is about 30%, 30% reduced risk of infection, but actually the numbers are fairly small, so it could be anywhere between probably about 30% and minus 4% or something like that, depending on which figures exactly you take from their study. Okay, um, the, the other really important thing about um, CTL responses is that they make the largest contribution to uh, the variation in disease progression. So different people infected with HIV take very, very different times to, to come down with AIDS. Some people will develop AIDS within sort of a relatively handful of years. Some people will go on for decades and not develop AIDS. And the biggest determinant that people have found, the biggest genetic factor which influences that is which version of that blue molecule you have, which version of that HLA molecule, that molecule that presents T cell epitopes on the surface of cells. That's the clearest thing we know that um, has, is, is a host contribution to how long it takes to come down with um, AIDS if you're infected by HIV. And additionally, it's a major, the, the, the HLA, the T cell response and the HLA alleles are a major determinant of, of HIV evolution. So the immune response that is mounted, that involves T cells killing infected cells is having a huge impact on the, on the evolution of HIV to such an extent as we'll see in a few slides time that HIV viruses, which are found in particular populations, tend to, have, tend to have, to some extent, adapted to the type of HLA molecules that tend to be observed in those populations. So you can actually see on a population level that HIV is adapting to human um, host populations. So it's interesting to see that, and it's interesting to see that, that you can actually understand, to some extent, the trajectory of viral evolution by understanding um, the immune responses that are being mounted specifically by, uh, against these epitopes that are recognized by T cells. Okay, and this is just a picture of um, one of those blue molecules, <coughs> slightly turquoise or sea blue in this case, and um, bound to one of those antigens. So this is just showing sort of an example of what these actually look like on a molecular level. And um, so my cartoon wasn't quite accurate, which I took from a, a source in any case, but one of the important things, so this is the, the binding groove of the HLA molecule is shown here um, above with the, the red representing the antigen. And there's uh, particular, particular positions within that, that um, peptide which determine whether it can be bound by the HLA molecule. But we'll see that in a couple of slides' time, the detail of that. Okay, so we've already been through most of this information. The last point we haven't considered, HLA alleles or HLA variants that are found in different individuals tend to have funny names that look like that, A star 2602. That's just a label that we've got on a particular variant of the HLA molecule that's present in certain individuals. What might be helpful to know is that <clears throat> each individual has three of these kinds of 
HLA molecules that are uh, the, the ones that I'm talking about are HLA class one. That's a detail that we don't need to think about too much. There's three different loci, three different positions in the genome that, it, that encode these kinds of HLA molecules. <coughs> and obviously we're diploid, so we've got two copies of each chromosome. So you've got six different alleles that are present that are capable of presenting these epitopes in the surface of cells. So that's what the, the labels that we call, by which we call these HLA alleles look like, something like that. And they tend to be associated with motifs that look like this. So these are sequence motifs. This is a sequence motif which tells you something about the peptide, what the peptide must look like in order to be bound by this particular variant of the HLA molecule. So this is saying that we don't really know anything about what might have to be at the first position. At the second position, you can have V, T, I, L, or F. Those are just different amino acids. Again, at several positions intermediate, we don't know what you have to have. And at the last position, we know you have to have a Y, F, um, a Y or an F, or you could maybe have an M or an L. So that's how the binding preferences or the, that's basically encapsulates the information that we know, that we already have known from looking at lots of examples of these HLA alleles bound to peptides, we know that the, this is what the peptide must look like in order to have a good chance of being bound by this HLA allele. That's going to be relevant for later on because we're going to try to incorporate that information with the evolutionary information into a model to try to predict where these epitopes lie in amino acid sequences. Okay, um, so you mentioned that I'm going to sort of finish the, the background section. It's taking me longer than I realized I sort of get carried away when I start talking about some of this stuff. We, can, um, we already mentioned the idea that HIV, that viruses can escape from host immune responses. And um, there are several very well-known examples of um, viruses evolving away from specific immune responses that are mounted by specific HLA versions of the HLA molecule. So the one that I've written up here is an example. You can see this is, again, labels of, of HLA alleles. B57 stroke B5801, those are two distinct, two different but related HLA alleles. You just need to know that it's an, in fact, you could just, if you just think about this as an HLA type, B57, B5801, it is the case that there's a gene in HIV called GAG, <clears throat> and at position 242 of that gene, um, there's normally a, a T. The amino acid that's found there is usually T. When you've got this uh, these HLA alleles, if, if I genotype you and find that you've got B57 or B5801, you will very quickly, your virus will mutate away from having a T to having an N very, very quickly. And in fact, I was involved in some research in South Africa where we showed that, um, that if, you are, if you are infected, um, that, well, this mutation is very important and well known because the mutation from a T to an N has a major impact on the fitness of the virus. The virus would really like to have a T at position 242 um, because that allows it to interact with a, a, an important protein that it interacts with in the infected cell. Um, and if you put pressure on the virus, if you target that particular region of the virus, it will, under duress, mutate away from the T to the N. Um, but it really causes a, a major uh, damage to the ability of the virus to replicate. And in fact, we showed in research that I was involved in South Africa that if you're in, not only if you have B57 or B5801, are you a little bit protected from HIV? In other words, are you likely to go on to develop AIDS over a longer period of time? But in fact, if you're infected by somebody who's got B57 or B5801, you're also likely to have a little bit better prognosis. <clears throat> the reason being, you're infected by a fairly a weakened, attenuated strain of the virus, and the virus takes some time to recover from that attenuation which happened in the person who infected you, 
eventually when, <clears throat> if you do get infected by such a person, and if you don't have B57 or B58 or 1, your virus will go from being an N back to a T, but it might take some time for it to do that, and in the meantime, your immune system gets a little bit of a break and an upper hand of the virus. So, um, escape, immune escape. So how do you escape? How does the virus escape from the immune response? There's lots of different ways it can do it. It can remember when the virus, in order to present these peptides on the surface of the cell, these short protein fragments, they have to be produced in the first place. They have to be chopped up from viral proteins by these enzymes within the host cell. The virus can sometimes evolve mutations that prevent that, uh, the, that process working correctly. So pre prevent the processing of these peptides or the virus can evolve mutations which prevent this peptide from fitting into the HLA molecule. So it doesn't any longer fit in very nicely. It doesn't fit in, for example, you could have a mutation which mutated your V here to a, um, to a Y. So it doesn't really fit in. It's not, it no longer looks like a peptide that can be bound by that HLA molecule. Um, or lastly, it can evolve mutations that just affect how well it can be recognized by the T-cell receptor. That last one, for deep biological, I'm probably going into too much of the biological detail, the last one is somewhat temporary because there are many different kinds of T-cells and um, they can, you can produce more T-cell responses even if you fail to recognize a particular peptide. So that's um, uh, not too relevant. So we've gone through everything else. So what we're going to be trying to do, we're going to get onto the modeling pretty much now, is trying to incorporate sequence evolution into, into epitope prediction. So currently, epitope prediction, so predicting the regions of a virus that are going to be recognized by the epitope, can be done based on amino acid sequence motifs. So we saw that there's particular motifs that are required for binding of the HLA molecule to a peptide. And so you could actually just see, well, let me just identify all the positions within the amino acid sequence of the virus that conform to that um, peptide motif. And you could then say, well, these are my predictions for where the epitopes are within the virus. You could do that, and um, you'd get a lot, of, uh, a lot of results because there would be many matches to those motifs. The motifs are not very specific, and they're quite short. So there would be many matches to that. In fact, most of those wouldn't be functional um, uh, epitopes, wouldn't actually really be bound by HLA and recognized by T cells. Or the second one you can do is actually based on structures of HLA alleles. So if, you've got, if you know what the structure is, in fact, what this structure here is, if you've got that structure and you know these structures are slightly different for different HLA alleles, if you have the structure, you can see how well that structure is likely to fit with any particular peptide. So how likely is that peptide to be presented on the surface of the cell? How likely is that peptide to be bound by this structure corresponding to this particular HLA molecule? You can do that. And um, lastly, then you could do it using a sort of a blind machine learning approach where you incorporate, try to incorporate lots of sources of information about uh, what these peptides must look like and combine, uh, use basically sort of an empirical approach where you take examples of peptides which, are, which have been recognized by this HLA allele and try to infer other peptides that are also going to be recognized by this HLA allele. But all of these methods, <clears throat> so there are variants in these methods and there are very, varying degrees of complexity and sophistication of some of these methods, but none of the methods that are out there actually use evolutionary information. <clears throat> So one of the characteristics, key characteristics that I've been trying to get across is that uh, epitopes, parts of, the, of viruses that are recognized by, um, by, this, by T cells uh, tend to evolve in order to prevent being recognized by T cells. So if you have a lot of sequences from a lot of different individuals and if you know something about what the HLA molecules of each of these individuals are, you might expect to see characteristic patterns of evolution 
occurring within the epitope region. So you might be able to see that evidence of escape and reversion. So escape when you have a particular HLA allele, you've got pressure to escape from the, uh, a peptide which can be bound by the HLA allele and um, pressure to revert to the most fit kind of the form of the peptide in the absence of that HLA allele. So for example, you could think about that this mutation that we talked, that we studied somewhat in South Africa, T242N, individuals, if you didn't know that there was an epitope there at position 242, spanning position 242, but if you could see that every time you had somebody who had B57 or B5801, they always had a mutation away from the T towards an N, and every time that somebody didn't have that epitope, you always had a mutation back to the T, you could infer that there might be an epitope for B57, B5801 in that region. And that's a very, that would be a very simple and clear and easy example because it's a very, very strong effect. But there might be more subtle effects which you can see if you've got enough sequences from enough different individuals and enough individuals are, you've, you've got enough of their HLA types and you can actually see if there's some sort of relationship between how the two are evolving. So that's what we're going to try to do. The goal is to incorporate that evolutionary information in a sort of model-based approach to try to uh, to try to support other approaches to predicting epitopes in order to be able to say what are the regions within the virus that are being targeted by cellular immune responses because that's relevant for being able to understand vaccines and or design vaccines and also to understand how the virus is evolving over time. So that's our goal and the data we've got to do it <coughs> looks somewhat like this. This is, would be a tiny fragment. picture is a tiny fragment of the kind of data that we've got. Um, the data come from 506 different patients in Durban in South Africa. Uh, these are taken from a study in 2008, um, but the sequences are generated quite a long time before that, as far as I know. And there's been other studies of these sequences. So th this is just showing a molecular sequence alignment. So these, each row here is a sequence from a different individual. The sequences are obviously a lot longer than this, and they come from a lot, there are a lot more rows than this, so there would be 506 rows here, and the sequence length is would be on the order of a couple of thousand. These are nucleotide sequences in this case. We're going to be going from <coughs> nucleotides. Obviously, we've been talking up to now about amino acids, and so we're going to be translating these nucleotide sequences into amino acid sequences and going through how to do that. Um, and these sequences from these patients are related to one another by these tree structures called phylogenetic trees. And these tree structures are used to model how these sequences are related to one another. And um, in some cases, simple tree structures like this can't be used to represent the relationships between these sequences that we've got. And that issue we'll deal with if it comes up as a question, but we won't deal with unless it comes up as a question at the end of the talk. So we've got HLA genotypes for all the patients. When I say all the patients, I mean about 502 of them. There's a couple that we didn't actually have um, HLA data for. What are the dashes in the... Yeah, so that means, so yeah, this is a, a sequence alignment. So it's um, at a given position. Uh, okay, it's been shifted or something. Isn't yeah, it? it's been, there's been a mutation, there's been a deletion or an insertion. So, and that, the dashes reflect that insertion or deletion. So at each position, these sequences have been lined up so that at each position, the nucleotides should be the same in everybody unless there's been a mutation at that position. So in other words, any differences now reflect mutations, but of course the types of mutations that can occur are these simple point mutations where a G, for example, mutates to an A, but you can also have these deletions of whole pieces and you can have insertions of whole pieces, so you've got to actually line them up, try and infer what the, um, what the events that actually have taken place.
software, which is also, of course, a very difficult problem in its own right and a major source of uncertainty in everything else that we're going to do. Is, um, for, the sim for, the, for simplicity, we're going to end up assuming that the alignment is correct, which is not really a very good thing to do. And, um, and there's ways in which we can try and make that assumption a little bit less fraught. And we're also going to be assuming that the tree, the relationships that we infer between these sequences, are corre is correct for now at least. We can actually try to do something about that assumption. Are you going to explain to us what, what we should understand from observing the tree? Yeah. <laughs> yeah so that's, in the, that's what I'm going to try to do now. <laughs> so, that, so a phylogenetic tree is a way of, of describing the relationships between a set of sequences. So supposing we have a set of sequences. Here we have S1, S2, S3, and S4. And the evolution of uh, molecular sequences, DNA sequences, say, is usually described by a continuous time Markov process using these bifurcating trees. So the, um, what the tree, just first pictorially or visually, what the tree is actually telling you is it's telling you something about the, it's actually telling you a complete evolutionary story that explains where S1, S2, S3, and S4 have come out of. So if you can imagine, back at the beginning, this, this point here represents the common ancestor of all these sequences. That common ancestor, you can imagine, for some reason, split in two. One of the sort of the traditional ways in which you might think of this is if you were talking about lions and tigers and uh, zebras, you might think of speciation events. <clears throat> so this event, this here, might represent a speciation which happened some at some point back in time. And so those bifurcation, the, um, these events, we imagine at least that they occur as bifurcations, so splitting into two. And um, <clears throat> there's quite a lot of detail in terms of how those events take place even if it's something like speciation. And then you evolve down along. So these, these horizontal lines here represent how much evolution has taken place uh, along the graph. So this uh, uh, horizontal line is proportional to the, the number of mutations that have taken place along a certain lineage. So this, each horizontal line represents a particular lineage. And how long that horizontal line goes on for represents how many mutations have taken place along that lineage. So you have an initial split here. You have a lineage which evolves for this amount of time. We've got no scale here. I'm not telling you exactly what amount of time that is or what that means. It means a particular number of mutations. And then you had another split. And uh, again, this lineage evolved for a certain amount of time. This lineage evolved for a certain amount of time and split again. And that gave rise to S3 and S4. And this gave rise to S2, S1, etc. So that you've got a process which is taking place. And that process can be described by a continuous time Markov process, uh, pro as a mar continuous time Markov process with these bifurcations taking place. And in the context of HIV, which is not lions and tigers, we've got um, those bifurcations just re represent uh, individual lineages of the virus. Um, evolving over time. So you can imagine an individual virus. If that virus uh, gets into a cell and replicates, you can imagine that um, each of the, its, its daughters uh, go off and become separate lineages that then split again. And um, of course, we don't have a sample of all viruses, but we've got a sample of a, a subsample of the viruses which currently exist, and they can be related by some sort of a family tree which relates, uh, which you can trace back and understand how, where these lineages come from. Can I ask a couple of questions? Yeah. Um, so the, 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 S, the S's here, are they, are you conceiving them as being your spring of 2,000 characters yeah. or greater yeah. or less? Yeah. Um, uh, you, you, is it assumed that the strings are all distinct if you go down a lineage or could it be the, you know, uh, mutations in one could lead you back to an earlier? It could, it's fairly, un, it's fairly, well, yeah, it does happen, but it, um, it's so, but, the, but, the tree, but in the tree structure, do like could, can I have S three and S one be the same in yes. the tree structure? That's you, not a problem. That's not a problem. Could. That's not a problem. No, it's not a problem. It's extremely unlikely, but it isn't a problem. Yeah. 
Yeah. The relation question is the tree, presumably you're observing the essence at the end yeah. and inferring the tree. Yeah. And is there a unique tree or is there a reason to believe the tree is, is unique, unique tree? Well, what you can observe or, or multiple trees explain the same observation? Well, there's, a, there's a unique uh, true tree. So if, if we were able to follow what happened over, over time, yeah. there's a unique true, true, there's a unique correct tree. The, the tree which we might infer is almost certainly going to be incorrect. Which we, the, the tree which we're going to infer is some sort of an estimate of the, of the correct tree. The correct, the true tree actually is well defined. So it actually means um, all we need to know is that there was a, a, a bifurcation at this point. A certain number of mutations occurred along that lineage. A certain number of mutations occurred along this lineage. That's all. The, and this, as a depiction of what actually happened, it's a reasonable, uh, it's a unique sort of story. But um, what we might infer is almost certainly not going to be correct. Could, could you, so, so just a structural question, if you're only observing the S's and working backwards, could you work backwards something that's completely different that would also validly explain data but not be the true one? Is that Sorry, yeah. could there be a, a, a tree that explains that fits the data, the observed data? Yes. Yeah. Sequence of mutations, but it has is completely different from the true one. There's multiple So I mean there's m multiple equally likely trees. I don't know if they're equally likely, but oh, no. working backwards, you can't distinguish from them, between them. Um, Depends on how good your data is, but uh, yeah. some well, ability question. The observations. So would the, would the, I think that, um, I mean, it's a, so th this sort of comes back to part of the, f the field of molecular phylogenetics. I mean, what, and it's a sort of a question about the theory of molecular phylogenetics. Can you have, I mean, and something about the, how the landscape, sort of probability landscape refle reflects the sort of, events that have actually taken place, the true event. Um, it's not something which is directly part of what I want to spend too much time talking about, so um, we can have a chat about it afterwards if you want, but yeah. Okay, we'll go on. So that's what, um, that's what a phylogenetic tree is, more or less, and they're based on these continuous time Markov processes, kind of assuming, and you can kind of blame Ken because I, I interpreted, I asked Ken, um, what the sort of background of the audience was, and his feeling was that the audience was probably stronger on sort of probability than, than on the biology. So I've spent a long time in the probability. I'm going to sort of, uh, a long time in the biology. I'm going to skip over some of the probability, which may also reflect the fact that. I think you're going to get an accusation that I was representing myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, the, we're, typically these trees are inferred, or this. this this scenario is modeled using continuous time Markov processes. In continuous time, I'm going to sort of recap what these are very, very, very briefly. So um, you can, if anyone sees any flaw in what I say, feel free to point it out because I don't, feel very, um, I don't feel very expert in the area of continuous time Markov processes. But in continuous time Markov process, uh, transitions happen at irregular intervals described, which are with time between transitions uh, uh, exponentially distributed. So in our case, transitions here, when I refer to transitions, um, state transitions I'm going to be referring to, these, I'm referring to mutations. So I'm looking at a sequence and I'm looking at one position within that sequence. So I'm looking at one position within one of these sequences here. So one column of one of these sequences, uh, one, one column of one of these alignments and looking at what happens that along, um, along one branch of, these, of this tree. Okay. And along one branch of that tree, we're going to have transitions, in other words, mutations from one nucleotide. There are four different nucleotides, A, C, G, and T. And at any given time, any one of those nucleotides we can imagine can mutate into any other one of those nucleotides. And that happens at irregular intervals described, which is, and the time intervals between those events are geometrically distributed, so it's a memoryless process. And when those mutations occur, they're described by a transition probability matrix. Um, 
a Markov transition probability matrix. And usually in these continuous time, usually we restrict to homogeneous continuous time Markov processes because it's a lot easier to work with them. And in homogeneous cases, um, where the starting time doesn't matter, so the probability of an event happening um, uh, between from time t to time t plus s is independent of uh, t, it just depends on s. Okay, so that's what a, continuous, a homogeneous continuous time Markov process is. So the probability of mutating from nucleotide i to nucleotide j in time t is just the probability that at time t you've got state j, um, sorry, the probability that you've got state j at time t plus s given that at time s you've got state i and that can be described, that can be calculated by inferring the um, a probability transition matrix which is a function of time and that can be calculated from the matrix exponential of this generator function, generator matrix Q. So the continuous time Markov process is completely described by a matrix Q which describes the um, instantaneous rate of transition from one state to another. And that's also called, that's called sometimes the instantaneous transition rate matrix or variably the uh, generator matrix of the continuous time Markov process. And that's, um, so given some time t, and um, we haven't said what we're gonna, how we're going to work with time, what we're, how we're going to parameterize time, anything really about time, but given some um, time interval t, we can work out exactly what the probability is of going from any state i to any state j um, in our, uh, where our states are from the four, in this case, uh, letter, alphabet, a, c, uh, t, and g, just by uh, calculating the uh, probability transition matrix, which is a function of time from the matrix exponential of the generator function q times t. Does that make sense? Is that okay? Yeah. Okay, so some people are familiar with that kind of idea. You're going to assume every, every entry evolves independently of every other entry? Every column. Every column, yeah. yeah. We're going to generally assume that, well, for in, at this level we're going to assume that. We're going to look at one of the um, ways in which that doesn't hold quite soon. I've got to actually get moving. <laughs> so, so, um, so in general, in, um, these, this is an example of a, of a Q matrix and this is an example of the way they're expressed in biology. So, in, um, so these are, uh, in the general case, we work with reversible generator, function, uh, generator um, matrices, which means that if you were to run time backwards, you wouldn't be able to distinguish between the processes occurring in this direction of time compared to the process occurring in this direction of time. And there are a lot of parameters which we take account of which describe the evolutionary processes. So on the rows here, we have A, C, G, and T. In the columns here, we have A, C, G, and T. And any entry here describes the instantaneous rate of transition from one um, nucleotide A, for example, to C. And that has two components, um, one which is generally called in molecular biology an, uh, an exchangeability component, and one which, which reflects the, um, the equilibrium frequency of the nucleotide. So one is kind of a mutational parameter, and one reflects the fact that different nucleotides occur at very different frequencies. So one is, in a sense, a kind of a selective parameter. And this is the way that these things are generally done um, for models, phylogenetic models of the evolution of, of DNA sequences. This is a classic example of a kind of matrix, generator matrix, which would be actually used. I don't give the diagonal entries because the diagonal entries are given by the condition on the Q matrix that the rows sum to zero. And, um, but in fact, this is not a very good way of representing a um, generator matrix for the continuous time Markov process for the evolution, for the um, nucleotide substitution process. 
And the reason it's not a very good way of representing that, if you can imagine sort of a more basic situation, this the first the most basic way in which um, continuous time Markov models, at, when they were first sort of introduced in molecular phylogenetics, there, uh, the, or this kind of modeling, the assumption was that all nucleotide substitutions happen with the, at the same rate. So A mutates to C at the same rate as G mutates to T, as A, as A mutates to T, etc. So you can imagine in that situation you have um, a matrix like this where you could imagine sort of replacing all of these parameters with just one single parameter, the mutation rate, mu, say. And one of the first things that people recognized about these transition rate matrices is that they don't account for one, um, several of the fundamental features of DNA, real DNA sequences. So in real DNA sequences, Cs don't occur at the same frequency as, t as Ts, for example. So these different nucleotides occur at different frequencies, and partially they occur at different frequencies because they have um, different sort of general fitnesses. And it's more the case, this, this, this becomes more important not for DNA sequences, but for the next type of sequence that we're going to look at, which are codon sequences. I'll explain what codon sequences are in a second. But they tried to, um, that was accounted for by introducing these pi parameters which reflect the equilibrium frequencies of each of the different states into each of the columns. And that's one way in which you can force, if you know what the equilibrium frequencies or what the frequencies you expect each of the nucleotides to be in a sequence, so if you know what the frequency of A's in the sequence should be, what the frequency of C's and G's and T's, you can include that information in one of these matrices. And you can include it, you can force the process to um, have an equilibrium frequency of A's of pi A just by multiplying the first column by pi A, second column by pi C, G, T, etc., like that. Um, but by doing that, you increase the rate at which, you increase equally the rate at which all of mutations into, um, into, uh, into, into A or into C, for example, take place. Whereas, in fact, what you'd like to do is compare the frequency of A's to the frequency of C's and work out the difference in those frequencies and then sort of try to work out the effect of fit, unfitness of, of a mutation from A to C. I actually don't really, I probably haven't managed to get that point across very well. Um, doing, there's a way to do that, which we've tried to incorporate in our evolutionary model. Uh, sorry, I haven't really gotten time to explain this correctly. I'm probably going to go on to some of the mechanics of what we've done in our model because I could labor that point and it probably would take me too long to really get it uh, clear enough. So this is a phylogenetic tree where we have um, labeled not just the sequences that we've got, but we've labeled some of the ancestral nodes as well. So here the AN is a, a sequence that we can observe. AN minus one is an ancestral node. It's a sequence which we haven't observed at some time in the past. And we've labeled the branches as well. BN is the length of this branch here. The length of the branch just means how many substitutions have taken place along this branch here. And the, um, the probability of the data that we observe, the data that we observe, we're just thinking now about a column in that sequence alignment. The probability of generating that column in the sequence alignment from this process, um, to calculate that probability, you've got to sum over all these states, over all these A's which is uh, quite a huge sum because we've got a, a phylogenetic tree that has uh, 500 odd sequences in it. That means a lot of ancestral nodes that are not known. And um, uh, approximately, I think, 500 uh, different summations to do. So you've got a, seri a, a series of sums like this, which is technically quite a difficult problem to do. There's a recursive way of doing this, which, is much, which, makes, which speeds it up a lot. The only reason for presenting this up here is to uh, is, to is to draw attention to the fact that calculating the probability of some model on a phylogenetic tree like this 
is not necessarily a trivial thing to do, so not something you want to take too lightly, and uh, something which, if you have to do a lot, can uh, produce a method which is computationally very intensive. Okay, so we've been talking about nucleotides. We hopefully have some idea how to calculate the probability of a set of data, in other words, the probability of a column in a nucleotide sequence alignment, given some model of how sequences are evolving over some phylogenetic tree, which involves this hairy sum here, which we can solve using some um, recursive algorithm. We're sort of now moving on from nucleotide sequences, and apologies that there's now a little bit more theory, a little bit more biology to understand, moving on from nucleotide sequences to codon sequences. So codon sequences are, are triplets of nucleotides which are translated in, uniquely into amino acids. So given a, trip of, a triplet of nucleotides, um, these, uh, any triplet of nucleotides can be mapped directly into some um, amino acid, but there are 61 uh, triplets of nucleotides that code for amino acids. Three of the triplets of nucleotides code for term chain termination, like TAA, and there are only 20 amino acids. So there's quite a lot of degeneracy in that, uh, in that process or in that uh, system. So that allows us to define um, a distinction between synonymous substitutions, which are substitutions which don't change the amino acid, and, and non-synonymous substitutions, which are substitutions which do change the amino acid, and the ratio of the rates at which these two substitutions, types of substitutions occur is defined as omega, and um, omega is quite an important parameter in molecular evolution because omega, um, the properties of omega, or the, uh, the size of omega allows you to infer things about the way a sequence is evolving. So if the non-synonymous substitutions, in other words, if mutations that change the amino acid are happening much more often than changes which don't change, the, than mutations which don't change the amino acid, then you can infer that there must be some selection operating on the amino acid sequence, which is um, giving you a benefit whenever you've got a mutation which changes that amino acid sequence. This, the typical situation is to have a value of omega which is less than one. And the reason you have a value of omega typically which is less than one is because you have nucleotide sequences that encode proteins that actually do something. So most, most nucleotide changes that change the amino acid mess up the function of the amino acid and are prevented from being fixed in the population by evolutionary forces, by selection. So you've got a lot of mutations which change the amino acid, which are prevented from actually occurring by selection. That reduces DN. You don't have any selection affecting DS in theory. And so that, therefore, in the typical protein, which is affected by selection to keep it doing what it does well, omega is less than one. But in some special cases, omega greater, can be greater than one. And in that context, mutations which change the amino acid are being favored. And in viruses which are coming under attack from the immune system, from the immune response, you can see that many um, mutations which change the sequence of the virus are likely to give it a fitness edge, a fitness advantage. In some cases, they'll hide the virus from the immune response. And so that gives you an omega which is greater than one. And these are the kind of ideas that we want to incorporate into a model, which I'm kind of running out of time to present, uh, that will try to help us uh, identify uh, epi immune epitopes. I'm going to see if I can chance getting away with that stuff and go directly to here. Um, so in our model, um, we're going to have a distinct, a different model of evolution for every different HLA allele. So we're going to have a, a model which describes how epitopes evolve, and uh, we're going to have a model which describes how sequences which are not epitopes evolve. And we're going to have a distinct model for every different HLA allele. So we're only going to think of one human leukocyte allele at a time. So for example, B57 or B5801, we might think of that one. And we want to have a model which describes how the sequence will, will evolve if, um, if the sequence is within an epitope, 
and, and another model which will describe how the sequence will evolve. If it's not within an epitope, we're going to use model comparison techniques and ultimately a phylogenetic hidden marker model to try to identify where these epitopes lie in the, in the sequence. So in order to get to that point, we first of all define um, some amino acid, um, define the wild type amino acid at a site as the most fit amino acid at that site. So at some position, now we're talking again about amino acid sequences, at, at a given position in the sequence, we assume that in the absence of an immune response which affects that position, there's one amino acid which is the most fit at that position. In the presence of an amino acid, in the presence of an immune response which targets that position, um, we, may, we may have pressure away from that state. So we have pressure on the virus to mutate away from that, that state. In the absence of an immune response against that position, we've got no pressure away from that state. So the idea is that we're going to have two parameters, gamma 0 and gamma 1. Gamma 0 will describe the, um, fit the equilibrium frequency of the wild type um, in the um, absence of the HLA allele. So in the absence of the HLA allele, we, um, uh, uh, we have no immune response against this particular position. And gamma 1 describes the fitness of the wild type in the presence of, a, an, um, of the HLA allele, which mounts an immune response against that position. So gamma 1, we expect, will be lower than gamma 0 because you drive the, because you've got mutations away from the wild type, mutations away from the most fit type of the virus to try to evade the immune responses. And so this is what you can imagine the data looking like at each terminal branch. We know whether the allele is present or absent. The red branches represent um, the uh, allele being present, and the blue branches represent the allele being absent. We're, of course, making the assumption that the virus is in the same individual along the entire terminal branch, which is um, an assumption which we can, uh, for now, live with. And then in the ancestral branches, we mix. We're going to be mixing two models. We're going to be mixing two values of omega in proportion, or gamma, in proportion to the um, the, the uh, the frequency of the allele in the entire population. So how often, for example, B5801 occurs in the entire population uh, will be P1, and P0 will be 1 minus P1. Okay, and so we're going to have a model that allows the wild type, the frequency of the wild type amino acid to depend on the, um, uh, on the presence or absence of the HLA allele. And this model is actually a codon model. I've skipped over the exact sense in which it's a codon model, exactly how we're using codon models. Um, but the probability, ultimately what we're going to be doing is calculating the probability of each column in the alignment. So XL is column L in the alignment. And um, the probability, we're going to be integrating over gamma 1 and gamma 0. So to calculate um, the probability of the data at position L in the alignment, um, we're going to integrate over uh, gamma 1 and gamma 0, where and gamma 0 and gamma 1 are going, to have, um, are, are going to have prior distributions, which in our case are going to be uh, beta distributions with some hyperparameters, xi. And um, this allows us to calculate what the probability of observing um, the data uh, under the epitope model. So PE is the probability of the data under the epitope model. And so the probability of the data at a particular site is going to be equal to the probability of the data at a particular site given a particular value for gamma 1 and a particular value for gamma 0. So we don't know what gamma 1 and what gamma 0 are. So at a particular site, which is within an epitope, <coughs> we don't know what the effect 
of an immune response against that site will be. Okay, so we have the idea that an immune response against that site in the epitope may reduce the frequency of the wild type, but in some sites that are within the epitope, in fact, there may be no escape mutations, and in some type sites that are within the epitope, there may be a strong pressure away from the wild type amino acid. So we assume that there, there is a um, beta distribution describing the extent to which the wild type is driven down in frequency and uh, integrate over, that, over, that, over those beta distributions to work out the probability of the data at a site L under that epitope model. And then under the non-epitope model, we assume that, the, that gamma zero is equal to gamma one. So gamma zero is the frequency of the um, wild type uh, in the absence of the, of the HLA allele. Gamma one is the frequency of the wild type in the presence of the HLA allele. And, in the, and on, if, if, something, if a site is not within an epitope, then it doesn't really matter whether you're within, uh, whether you've got the HLA allele or you haven't got the HLA allele, there's no pressure to have any immune escape at that site. So that's the idea. <clears throat> okay, so we're going to include this within a, a hidden Markov model. So the idea in our case is that the um, hidden Markov model will have two hidden states. Uh, the hidden states will be um, the epitope state or the non-epitope state. So you can either, a particular column in alignment can either be within an epitope or not within an epitope. So those are the two hidden states of the, of the um, hidden Markov model. And then the emission probabilities are the probability of generating the column within the alignment, given that you're within an epitope state. In other words, given that gamma one and gamma zero are allowed to be different from one another and are described by some beta distributions with some, uh, with some uh, parameters, xi, zero, and i, and one. And um, the emission probability of the non-epitope state is just uh, the, the expression where gamma one is forced to be equal to gamma zero. And we can use standard algorithms. Once, we've got these, once we calculate these emission probabilities, in other words, the probability of a column in the alignment under the epitope model, probability of the column in the alignment under the non-epitope model, we can use standard algorithms to do things like work out the most probable path through the hidden states. In other words, the most probable path through the epitope, non-epitope um, states in the sequence to work out likely positions of the epitopes. And for each position within the alignment, we can work out its posterior probability of being within <coughs> uh, an epitope or not within an epitope. So this is the simplest version of the epitope model. We also have a more complex version of the epitope model, which takes account of as much information as we can about what epitopes look like. And this is, in fact, the most complex version of what the epitope model looks like. <clears throat> and I'll just go through this and then show you some results. So in the more complex model of what an epitope looks like, you've got a, a non-epitope state. And you can go from a non-epitope state into an F state. F state stands for flanking state. And this is really important to us because <clears throat> some of the mutations which allow you to escape from an immune response don't actually occur within the epitope. They occur immediately upstream of the epitope, immediately adjacent to the epitope, which prevent this epitope from being digested by the enzymes that actually allow it to be produced in the first place before it's even bound by the HLA molecule and presented on the surface of the cell. So you can go from an N into an F state, an F2 state, an F3. These are, these are positions in the alignment where you can have escape mutations, but they're not, strictly speaking, within the epitope. Um, and then any of those states can go into the first position of an epitope, which is E1. The second position of an epitope is very important to us because it, it's very often um, the, uh, an anchor residue, an important residue, one of those positions where we actually know from the sequence motif 
um, something about the amino acid that occurs here, and we can incorporate that information. I haven't gotten really time to explain how we incorporate that information into the model. And then from the second position in the epitope, we can go to uh, the third position, fourth position, fifth position, sixth position, seventh position. From the seventh, we can continue on because the epitopes can be of variable length. Or we can go into the uh, second anchor residue position. This particular model that's shown here is the model that's appropriate for B5801, in fact, because B5801 has two anchor residue positions and at, these, at, these, at position two and position um, eight, I think, which has some flexibility in it. And once you're at the end of the epitope, you can go back into the non-epitope state again. So that's the model that's appropriate for B5801. And there's, how exactly we incorporate the information we've got about the amino acid that has to be present at the anchor residue motif is shown here, but I don't really have time to go through it in detail. So this is some of the results that we've obtained. So these are the kinds of results we've obtained. So for every uh, site, this is the GAG protein that we have data, data for. And this shows you positions within the GAG protein. This shows you base factors, comparing the fit of the model, the epitope model with the non-epitope model, and showing that that in fact corresponds quite well with what's known about these are the ones with the um, circle square, uh, the dots on them are mutations that have been reported in another study that, um, that compared, that used sort of evolution to try to, or that try to look for a relationship between HLA alleles and mutations at particular sites. And we've also identified these other ones, which are well known, uh, this one and this one, which are well known escape mutations for this particular uh, epitope. And the Bayes factors are shaded by the degree of evidence favoring the uh, epitope model with um, light gray representing some evidence, the darker gray and the darkest gray representing uh, quite a lot of evidence and definitive evidence respectively. And then we've got decoding of the, um, these are posterior probabilities of the Markov model. And this shows you how well, in this case, <coughs> predictions made on the basis of, this is the shaded regions show you the uh, Viterbi, sorry, show you Viterbi uh, decoding of the epitope model. Uh, these are positions, predicted positions of epitopes, and they correspond fairly well to the black uh, bands at the top, which show you uh, previously determined positions of these, epitope, these epitopes within these sequence. So there's fairly good correspondence <coughs> in this case, although this is a fairly easy case because it's B5801, that example which I showed you, which has a very, very strong effect on the evolution of the GAG protein. So this is an example of some of the, of the data, somehow we're looking at the data at the moment. These are some other examples, and we've checked all of the HLA alleles against all of the sequence data we've got. So we've got a lot of these kinds of diagrams which show you how well we've got, how, the, how well the correspondence, how well, how well we've got matching between um, the known epitopes, in this case shown in dark orange, um, possible epitopes shown in light orange here, and predicted epitopes shown in the shading here. And in, in reality, for all of these other HLA alleles, our results are a mixed bag. In some cases, we work quite well. In other cases, we completely miss well-known epitopes, like this dark orange one on the top there. And in other cases, we predict epitopes where there's no evidence at all from previous work that there is an epitope. And so we're currently working through these. In some cases, there seems to be very strong correspondence between the evolution within a particular site and um, the presence or absence of an HLA allele, but no evidence from other sources that there's an epitope within those regions, and those are worth looking at in more detail. These are just some other examples showing you some of the other issues that arise, and this shows you some of the performance overall. I don't want to take up too much time. So the main conclusions are that we've managed to produce a, the first, what's called mutation selection model of immune escape. I didn't get to get into the details of exactly what makes this a mutation selection model. That has to do with the sort of the codon modeling, which we kind of ran out of time a little bit for. And um, we've got, it's one of the few examples of an evolutionary model, which explicitly includes 
variables that describe the environment. So we've got um, the, an aspect of the, of the environment of the, of the virus is the immune response or the HLA allele of the host, and we incorporate that HLA allele information in directly into the evolutionary model, and there's not very many evolutionary models that try to do that. And this also provides a kind of a probabilistic framework for predicting epitopes. And this framework we've shown in this case, not in, again, we had to skip over some of the details, shown how that can be incorporated with simple sequence motifs for searching for epitopes. But in principle, that can be combined with any other tool which tries to predict epitopes, either from structure or sequence or anything else, in a kind of a probabilistic framework that incorporates the evolutionary information. So there's some issues which we're still working on. Issues, for example, sort of like linkage. If anyone knows about this, they know that certain HLA alleles are linked to one another. So if you have this HLA allele, it predicts that you also have this one, and that sort of can cause um, epitopes that are predicted for this HLA allele to also appear as though they're predicted for this HLA allele. There's issues around that, which we're, we've been to date dealing with in a sort of a post-hoc um, kind of a way, which are very, very difficult to incorporate uh, carefully into this kind of model. Um, we're not, not all T-cell responses have the same effect on sequence evolution, so there's going to be some T-cell responses which don't have this pattern of, of, of escape mutation, maybe don't put a lot of selective pressure on, or maybe their sequence region is too conserved and you can't have free mutation of that region, and um, you don't get this pattern of escape and reversion, which uh, is kind of telltale for an epitope. So we're not going to find all T-cell epitopes using this method, only the ones that kind of have an effect on the evolution of the virus, which are probably in many cases going to be some of the most important ones. There are also things like compensatory mutations. So you can have a mutation that allows the virus to escape from an immune response. It might affect the fitness of the virus. And sometimes somewhere else, you get a compensating mutation which allows the virus to restore some of its fitness. And those compensatory mutations may also appear like epitopes in our approach. And we have to deal with that kind of issue as well. And the last thing that we really would be interested in currently looking at doing, if we can find somebody to do it, is to integrate this method with real epitope prediction tools. One of the, difficulty of the difficulties of this is that it's very, very computationally intensive and requires, um, I mean, certainly requires implementing in a cluster. So it's very difficult to sort of provide a desktop application which allows people to do this easily. So that's, um, that's basically everything. That's, that's Table Mountain. And uh, we're Cape Town, a lot of this work was started in Cape Town before I moved to Ireland at the beginning of the year. A lot of it is being done by Miguel Lacerda, who's a PhD student who did this some time ago. Paper for this has just been accepted for publication. Conrad Scheffler is a collaborator. Carolyn Williamson at UCT is a very um, uh, helpful collaborator and advisor on this kind of work. And then Sergei Kozakowski-Pond at UCSD, who um, allowed us access to his computer cluster, but also is the person who wrote the, um, the modeling language for um, modeling sequence evolution, which we use very heavily, which is called HiFi. If there's any time for questions, I'd be happy to take some. <laughs> I don't know how stuck for time we are, but if anybody has a quick question they'd like to ask. Uh, you've been treating virus as kind of an individual molecule, a molecule or as an individual organism, you know, that has a population within a body. But could you have um, sort of different um, uh, variants of the same virus within a body and they're acting sort of in concert so that they have slightly different um, phenotypes and they're somehow able to, you know, when the T-cell response targets one of them, the other one comes in to its own, sort of, so they act in concert against the body, so it's kind of acting. 
Well, you can certainly have different strains and very, very quite a lot of diversity develops over time. Over the course of years of infection, you get massive, quite you know, amazing amounts of diversity of, the, of a viral population. You get what's called a quasi-species cloud, like a whole sort of cloud of different variants that are present within an individual. Um, whether they can in some sense act as kind of decoy or sort of deflect the immune, whether one virus strain would deflect the immune response from another, I don't know. Um, I do know that there's a lot of defective viruses within the um, uh, and the, within that quasi-species, an awful lot of defective viruses are produced. And one of the sort of the theories is that that def defective viruses may act as a kind of a decoy for the immune uh, for the immune system, and that might be um, one of the things which makes HIV quite difficult to target by the immune system, and also leads ultimately to sort of exhaustion of the immune response in some sense. And um, I don't know if that answers your question, but exact. I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't describe that kind of sort of coordinated behaviour unless it can sort of occur purely by um, by chance. I don't think that um, there's no examples that I'm aware of. That. There was a, quite a bit of variation in the uh, gene sequences that you showed there. Uh, the, the, um, are there other parts of the uh, virus genome where there's um, a, a lot less variation, let's say if you discard the, um, the defective uh, viruses, which are presumably not, there's not very many of them. Yeah, there's huge heterogeneity. And there's places where there's extremely rapid evolution, and there's places where there's almost complete conservation, where um, there's parts of the virus which are, uh, which are pretty much unchanging. Yeah. Is there any hope for trying to target the parts that can't change? Um, that can't change? Uh, well, maybe they don't change because they're not being targeted. Maybe that's one of the reasons that they're not changing. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredibly versatile uh, virus, and I don't think there's any... There's examples of places, for example, like that classic example of that epitope that crosses T242N, where it's obviously very difficult for the virus to change, and the virus does change ultimately, and it finds a way around it. You know, it finds ways of compensating, ways of changing in other parts of the viral sequence, and there are, in fact, known compensation mutations for that particular example. I don't think there's any examples of... Um, there's no well-known examples of T-cell responses that target parts of the viruses that are completely incapable of um, escaping that I'm aware of. Uh, yeah. Phil Huff, question? Um, as far as I understood, you presented the HLA molecule as some kind of um, mechanism to put pressure on the evolution of the virus. Yeah? Uh, it's, it's not, well, it's, well, all it is is a molecule that presents Peptides on the yeah, but you hidden so so your hidden states. You try to uh, to identify the uh, HLA type molecule that so the epitope. So the hidden states are whether it's an epitope for that particular HLA allele or not. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so um, another measure uh, to put pressure on evolution is, is drug treatment. Is uh, I, I didn't you didn't mention it? Uh, did you assume that? Um, there is no treatment, or which well, might be reasonable. Or yeah, um, in this particular cohort, I think, um, as far as I know, these are all treatment naive. And, yeah. But uh, but in general, if even if they were drug treated, it wouldn't necessarily be a problem because drug treatment or non treatment or non treatment shouldn't be correlated with the HLA allele. Although it might be because, in fact, different HLA alleles are associated with different rates of progression of disease and different severity of disease. So you could, in fact, have a situation where drug treatment or non drug treatment is correlated with the HLA allele, which would definitely cause you a problem, because you'd have sites of resistance which would emerge as potential epitope sites in that context. Yeah. 
I think, I think we're probably going to run out of time, but Cahill is here for the rest of the afternoon, so if people have further questions, they, uh, they can ask him at the end of the talk. So we'll thank him one last time.